Well, we are uh, in the second message of a mini-series called Honey from the Rock, or Sermons for Sufferers. And uh, our text this morning is from uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, which I think most scholars believe was the first of the four Gospels. Uh, it's the, certainly the shortest of them. Uh, it was known, in a sense, as the Gospel of Peter, because Mark was a protege, although we saw in, uh, in 2 Timothy 4, where Paul uh, encourages Timothy to uh, bring Mark with him for he's useful for ministry, but apparently uh, Mark and Peter had a special relationship, so uh, his gospel had Peter's imprimatur upon it, Peter's apostolic imprimatur, so it was known uh, as, uh, in a sense, the, the gospel of um, Peter. Uh, it focuses particularly on our Lord's actions, what he did more than what he taught. There's certainly teaching here, but the emphasis is often on his actions. The word immediately occurs uh, repeatedly throughout the gospel. So it's, it's a fast-moving gospel, and it seems to present our Lord in a particular way as the servant of the Lord. Jesus came, he said, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The prophet Isaiah especially uh, presented a number of messianic prophecies about the coming servant of the Lord. And that seems to be a particular emphasis in Mark's gospel. And um, we're reading this morning uh, about the feeding of the 5,000, which is one of the few miracles which occurs in all four gospels. So with that little bit of background, I know that you've already stood for a while, but I'm going to ask you to stand again as we read and uh, Brad's already prayed for the Lord's blessing on our reading, so please stand and I'll begin reading in Mark 6 and verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. They've just returned from their first uh, preaching foray. He sent them out to preach, and so they return and report to him about that. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted or a desolate place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them depart, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered them and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them, and the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. 
And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Please be seated. We began our service this morning by singing David's wonderful psalm, Psalm 63, part of which Brad quoted just a minute ago in uh, his prayer, uh, O God, you are my God, I seek thee earnestly, my flesh yearns for thee, my soul thirsts for thee in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And if you read the superscription before the psalm begins, it says a psalm of David in the wilderness of Judah. David apparently wrote that psalm during a time when he was in the wilderness of Judah, hiding from Saul or uh, Absalom perhaps. Uh, It's not the first time that something wonderful happened in the wilderness. It's interesting, in Luke chapter 1, Luke writing about John the Baptist says, The child grew and became strong in spirit. He was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And then in chapter 3, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the, gift, for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. It's interesting that Luke, guided by the Holy Spirit, uses the same Greek word. It's translated here, wilderness. Uh, in one place, the New King James uh, translates it desert, but it's the same word that we have three times in our text this morning. Now, uh, the New King James translates it a deserted place. The ESV translates it a desolate place, and I've reflected that term in my sermon. But it's interesting. My point is that God has often done great and wonderful things in desolate and deserted places. Three points for you this morning, brothers and sisters, and the first one is this. Jesus sometimes leads his disciples into a desolate place. Jesus sometimes leads his disciples into a desolate place. Notice it's Jesus who takes the initiative here in verse 31. He, that's Jesus, said to his disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate or a deserted place. Now the term, the the Greek term here can refer, uh, probably in this case refers primarily to the physical nature of the place, especially the idea is it's an isolated place, a place uh, uh, distant from towns and people. Uh, It's not necessarily desolate like the wilderness of Judea, which was all sand and rocks. In fact, we're told that there was grass in John 6, where he described it, says not just grass, much grass in the place. But it was in the middle of nowhere. Uh, The word can be translated um, isolated, lonely, quiet. In fact, our word hermit comes from the Greek word here, eramos. A hermit is somebody who lives in solitude away from people, and that's the word that's used to describe this place. 
So the emphasis here is probably primarily on desolation in the sense of no people, no towns, no villages in the middle of nowhere. But there are other kinds of desolate places as well. There are uh, physically uh, desolate places, um, poverty, a lack of the necessities of life. That can be a kind of desolation. Uh, Health problems, again, uh, we know about that. Pain, weakness, that can be a form, that can be a desolate place when you're in a place of physical need. There are places of social desolation. Think of Naomi in the book of Ruth where she lost her husband and her two sons. And um, Job in 1914, my relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The psalmist in Psalm 38:11, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. My nearest kin stand far off. The people that we would normally have leaned upon, depended upon for help and comfort and encouragement, sometimes they forsake us. That can be a kind of a desolate place. There are places of emotional desolation where we lack the feelings of joy and peace and encouragement or perhaps lack all feelings at all. Extreme depression, despair, discouragement. The psalmist speaks in some of the psalms of weeping all the time, um, not being able to sleep. So there are places of emotional desolation and even spiritual. That's one reason why I read Psalm 13. It's only six verses long, but a third of those verses, the first two verses of those six verses in Psalm 19, the words four times, how long? How long will you hide your face from me? Will you forget me forever? And so there can be desolate places of various kinds. Sometimes they may be the result of our own sin, our own neglect of the means of grace, but not always. It's not inevitably the case. Again, it says of our Lord Jesus Christ led the Spirit Jesus, full of the Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So the point here is that Jesus sometimes leads his disciples into desolate places. Are you following Jesus Christ this morning? Is he your Lord and your Savior? If not, he needs to be. You need for him to be. There is a hell. I take no pleasure in preaching about it, brothers and sisters, but it's clear and Jesus spoke about it more than anybody else, and it's the ultimate desolate place. Physically, a place of darkness, outer darkness, eternal fire. Emotionally, weeping, gnashing of teeth, and spiritually, the complete absence of the presence of God except for his wrath. And it will last forever. But the good news of the gospel is that we can be delivered from this desolation because Jesus himself experienced the ultimate desolation for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so... If you're not trusting in him, 
you need to be so that you may not be led into that desolate place. And uh, whatever desolation you may be facing, and again, one of my questions, are you in a desolate place this morning? Some of you may be there this morning. Some of you have been there at times past, and if you're not now, you probably will be at some point in your life and your walk with Jesus Christ. But you don't want to go to that ultimately desolate place. But perhaps, and this is my hope, that most of you know and love Christ, and you're seeking to walk with him, and yet you may find yourself this morning or at some other point, you may know someone who is in a desolate place. We shouldn't be shocked or surprised by that, brothers and sisters. The Lord has obviously led you there, and it's not necessarily a bad place to be. If you're in a desolate place this morning as you walk with Jesus Christ, he's only treating you the way he treated his apostles. And that brings us to our next point. One of the things that shows us, again, it's not unusual for Jesus to lead his disciples into a desolate place, but our text shows us something else that ought to be a great encouragement to us, especially if you find yourself in a desolate place this morning. This is our second point. Jesus always leads his disciples into a desolate place in order to bless them. Jesus always leads his disciples into a desolate place in order to bless them. Now, God's ultimate purpose for his children is always good. You remember Joseph's words when he spoke to his brothers at the end of the book of Genesis? Uh, he said, you meant it for evil. Their actions toward him when they uh, threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery, they were going to kill him. And uh, Judah intervened and said, don't do that. So they just sold him into slavery. Joseph says, you meant it for good, but God, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the purposes I have for you, says the Lord, purposes for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And Jesus, when he leads his disciples into desolate places, does it for their ultimate good in order to bless them. Notice what it says here in verse 31. Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate or deserted place and rest for a while. For many were, many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. They were so busy, they didn't have time even to eat. And Jesus says... In the light of that, let's go to a desolate place. Now, Jesus Christ was a hardworking man. A lot of the classic uh, pictures, and I'm not endorsing pictures of Jesus. Don't misunderstand me. But he's often portrayed as very frail and, and thin. I don't know if that the idea is to convey a certain humility or gentleness. But brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ was a muscular man. Earlier in this chapter, when, Jesus, when Mark describes Jesus' return to Nazareth and visit, preaching there in the synagogue, and, and uh, on the one hand, people were impressed. On the other hand, they're a little bit, isn't this the carpenter? But that word carpenter means not only somebody who works with wood, uh, it can encompass working with stone and brick. It involves skilled but heavy manual labor. You couldn't call and have, have all your lumber delivered to you uh, from uh, 84 Lumber Home Depot by a truck. There were no power tools. And Jesus spent 
much of his first 30 years working with his hands. He was a hard-working man. Remember earlier in chapter 4 when they were caught in the storm, they had to wake him up. He was asleep. He was so tired, apparently so exhausted, that the, the tossing of the boat didn't affect him. They had to wake him up and said, Lord, don't you care? We're about to, to sink. And yet he also is very sensitive. Psalm 103, he knows our frame that we are but dust. By virtue of his humanity, he can sympathize, he can empathize with you and me in our physical and other kinds of exhaustion. He's the one who says here, he's sensitive, give them something to eat. Again, the Lord says, when, when the, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, accused him and his disciples, or his disciples particularly, of sin because they were just taking a few uh, kernels of grain, eating them as they walked through the field on the Sabbath day. He said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Lord anticipated our need for rest. And our Lord Jesus Christ is very, we see him very sensitive to physical needs. He's also concerned about our rest of soul. Remember his invitation in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Sometimes a desolate place, a lonely, a deserted place, away from the hurly-burly of everyday life, can be a means of physical and spiritual rest. And that seems to be what our Lord had in mind here in the midst of this pressing ministry. He says to disciples, come away, let's go to a deserted or a desolate place. So he sometimes leads us into a desolate place to give us physical rest. Sometimes he does it in order to give us special fellowship with himself. Verse 32, they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Jesus said, let's you and me go away alone together. And of course, that was his own practice. And earlier in this gospel, Mark 135, in the early morning while it was still dark, he departed and went to a lonely place <clears throat> and prayed there. And later in this uh, same chapter, verse 46, he departed to the mountains to pray. Jesus himself would often go to deserted places for the purpose of prayer and spiritual fellowship with the Father. And he, his intention seems to have been initially, let's go away and spend some time together. You can report further to me about what happened on your preaching tour. We can be together. And Jesus sometimes leads his disciples into desolate places to give them a special experience of his grace and his power. That's what happens here. The feeding of the 5,000 was a miracle of grace. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, verse 34, and he had compassion on them. He didn't say, phooey, our plans are ruined. He saw this great crowd, and it says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And then in verse 37, he said to his disciples, give them something to eat. 
he fed their souls first by the bread of his teaching. And then he took care for their bodies as well. It's interesting, he did the same thing when he healed the paralytic. You remember when his friends let him down through the roof? The first thing Jesus said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. He gave him what he needed, more than what he wanted. And then, having done that, he healed his body. So, the feeding of the 5,000 was a miracle of grace. Our Lord Jesus, seeing the need of these people, spiritually and physically, and taking the initiative in his grace, he had compassion on them to meet that need. But it was also, obviously, a miracle of power. The account says there were 5,000 men... And with women and children, it may easily have been twice that many people. And with five loaves and two fish, it says they all ate till they were filled or satisfied. And after all those people had had enough to completely fill and satisfy them, there were 12 large baskets. The word suggests not a little, but a large basket of leftovers. And sometimes... Our desolate places and the reason the Lord takes us there because they provide a special opportunity for him to display his grace and his power. I think of this dear brother I hadn't heard about, Tom, uh, the police officer in Indianapolis and his wife until Brad mentioned it this morning. But think in a sense what a desolate place that must have been, maybe still in some ways for them, but how the Lord has used that to display his grace and power. Sadly, and this is too often the case, the people didn't get it. John 6 tells us in John's account of this miracle, what was their result? They wanted to take him and make him king. They didn't appreciate the spiritual dimension, the significance of what he had done. And even the apostles didn't get it. When they were leaving, Jesus says, uh, do you have any bread and they said, we've only got one loaf. And, and he, he, you know, had to explain to them, don't you remember what happened? I'm not talking about material bread here. Don't you remember what I did when I fed the 5,000, the 4,000? He's speaking in a spiritual way. As often happened, the apostles themselves didn't get it. In, Eli in, in 1 Kings chapter 19, after Elijah's battle with the prophets of Baal, his great victory, his high point literally and figuratively at the top of Mount Carmel. When Jezebel is determined to kill him, he flees. And 1 Kings 19 tells us about how the Lord took him away to a desolate, deserted place, and there he fed him, let him rest, and spoke a special word to him. And the Lord often wants to do that with us, with you when he leads you into some kind of a desolate place. Now, brothers and sisters, it's easy at times to misinterpret God's providence in our lives. The Westminster Confession, chapter 5, is about providence. Paragraph 5 says, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God... Notice those adjectives. What kind of God do we have? What, who are we talking about? The most wise. He could not be wiser. He could not be more righteous or more gracious. Doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations, the corruption of their own hearts, to chast and why? To chastise them for their former sins, to discover to them the um, 
hardness and strength of corruption, uh, the deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humble and to raise them to a more constant and close dependence for their support upon himself and for sundry, that means many other just and holy ends. But it, takes, it, it acknowledges the fact that the Lord often does that with his children for various good purposes. And it's essential when we find ourselves in a desolate place that we remember that the Lord is for us. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, and that's a rhetorical point, the assumption is God is for us. He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, he has demonstrated how much he's for us. Then who can be against us? Well, the answer is lots of people, the powers of darkness, but it doesn't matter because God is for us. And he causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Are you in a desolate place of some kind this morning? Don't assume it's just to punish you, although chastisement itself is a blessing if we learn from it. It's a sign of God's fatherly love and care. But don't assume it's necessarily for that or just for that. You can be sure it's for your blessing. And just a very practical question this morning, how good are you at resting? Physically, spiritually, emotionally. Some of us are better at that than others, and some of us need more rest than others, but even the most robust physically and spiritually and emotionally need rest at times. And sometimes it's an art to learn how to rest. The Sabbath is a testimony to the fact that we all need rest. Our wise God has ordained that one day in seven we should stop from our normal worldly toil and consciously rest physically and spiritually in him. And sometimes we need other Times besides just the Sabbath, special times like this. The Lord, at least his intention was to take them away to rest. They just come back from their first preaching tour and they needed physical rest. And I'm sure they were eager to tell him more details. And so vacations and sabbaticals are important. They can be a great blessing and especially when done well. And I think sometimes we have to learn how to rest well how some people, when they go on a vacation, uh, want to be very busy. They want to tour and go places and, and do things. And others uh, just want to sit, you know, and, and read a book. It's important to learn how we uh, rest the best and to, in order to refresh ourselves. And sometimes the Lord leads us into desolate places to force us to rest. He takes away the kinds of activities and other things we might normally do. If Jesus has put you in a desolate place this morning, one reason may be that he knows you need a break and you need to rest. Notice too, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ enjoys being alone with his disciples. Jesus Christ, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It's interesting, the first two verses, the first three verses of the letter to the Hebrews talk about through him he made all things he is the heir of all things and he upholds all things by the word of his power and here he wanted to be alone 
with these men, he enjoys being alone with his disciples. He is more eager to meet with you than you are with him. And perhaps he knows, that's another reason he might lead you in a desert place, perhaps he knows you need some special extended time alone with him. In the word in prayer, again, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, that invitation, come to me, learn of me, and find in doing that rest for your soul. Remember he told Mary that was the best part in Luke 10. At the end of Luke 10, when Martha was upset and frustrated, she's left me to do all the work for the meal because Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching. And the Lord says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about many things. Only one thing is really necessary, and Mary has chosen the best part, alone with me. Now, this is not to promote monastic living, but to stress that at times we can all benefit from some special extended times alone with the Lord. And I would suggest if and when you find yourself in a desolate place, make a priority of spending time in the word and time in prayer and ask the Lord not only just generally take advantage of that opportunity to be with him to learn from him but ask Lord are there other particular lessons you want me to learn uh, during this time and again we all need a, a desolate or deserted place of our own where we can meet with the Lord every day I hope you seek to meet with the Lord every day in his word and prayer if not let me urge challenge, encourage you to do so. Just as a practical matter, no law of the Medes and the Persians, but I would find a, a time in your day, and often earlier is better because the affairs of the day get us distracted, and so on. If you can do it earlier in the day, carve out 30 minutes, half an hour, and spend time in the Word, reading, and time in prayer responding to what you read and praying for other things too. And find a place where you can do that without distraction as much as possible. You know, Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley, had her own desolate place. It was her apron. She bore 19 children and raised 10. And, uh, but she was a godly and a disciplined woman, and uh, there was a time when she would pull her apron over her face, and the children knew mom's in prayer, and we we're to be quiet and allow her to spend that time with the Lord. Obviously, there's the Lord day, Lord's Day, and another good way to use the Lord's Day is not just in corporate worship, but uh, in a way that you can't do the other days of the week with all your other kinds of responsibilities, maybe carve out some additional time for prayer and for reading. Perhaps there's at least one more reason why the Lord may have you in a desolate place or may at some point in the future put you there because he wants to show you a work of his grace and power, some special work that he wants to show you. In this case, it was the feeding of the 10,000, but he may have a work that he wants to show you of his grace and power. So if you're in a desolate place this morning or the next time you find yourself there, remember and take comfort from the fact that Jesus always and only leads his disciples into desolate places in order to bless them. 
Now, again, uh, I've mentioned these things because I think they're relevant to our text. There are other passages that talk about this. Some desolate places may last longer than others. And there may be other lessons. Deuteronomy 8, uh, the Lord says uh, to Israel through Moses, you should remember the whole way the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and uh, let you hunger and fed you with manna that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then he says again, he fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers didn't know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. So, Brothers and sisters, while it's not only true that Jesus sometimes, perhaps even often, leads his disciples into desolate places, it's equally and wonderfully true that the only reason he ever does that is to bless them in the end. One last point this morning before we conclude, and it's this. No place is ever truly desolate when Jesus is there. No place is ever truly desolate when Jesus is there. The presence of Jesus Christ, whether it be a solitary jail cell, and who knows, as we're here this morning uh, worshiping the Lord, uh, there are believers in uh, Gaza, not many, but we know there are some Christians in Gaza, and even under normal times, they're, in, they're treated very poorly. Their situation is very difficult. Other parts of the world, North Korea, there may be uh, Christians in, in uh, prison uh, in, in solitary confinement, but when they have the presence of Jesus Christ, and Peter says the spirit of glory of God rests upon his people in a special way when they suffer for his sake. It's not ultimately a desolate place. Jesus' presence can make the most desolate places not merely inhabited, but pleasant and delightful. Samuel Rutherford, the Scottish scholar, pastor, the Westminster divine, said, no pen, no words, no image can express to you the loveliness of my only, only Lord Jesus. And that's why I read from 2 Timothy 4 about Paul, his experience there where he talks about how he had been abandoned. In my first offense, no one came to my aid. They all departed, forsook me. But the Lord stood with me. By virtue of his beauty and sweetness, in just a moment, we're going to sing Psalm 45. The superscription describes it as a song of love written by the sons of Asaph. And how does it begin? He describes him as the, the, the fairest, the handsomest among the sons of men. It's an interesting psalm. It's a messianic psalm that talks about both our Lord's humanity and his deity. And he begins by talking, celebrating the glory, the beauty of his humanity. Grace is poured upon your lips. Well, if we speak from what fills our heart, if, 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 our, if his mouth is full of grace, it's the fraction of his heart full of grace. And all that's fairest and most beautiful about man 
in his in the image of God is true of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he can empathize and sympathize with us because he's lived where we are. And so in his humanity, he's a wonderful companion. But also in his deity, not just his omnipresence, the fact that he can be in that jail cell or wherever we are, uh, the highest mountain, uh, the lowest pit, but because of his, his glorious uh, wisdom and beauty as God himself. And he promised, he's promised, brothers and sisters, never to leave us nor forsake us. The Old Testament has a number of wonderful promises to that effect. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. But Matthew 28, 20, the last verse of the Gospel of Matthew, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And it could be translated from the Greek, I am with you all the days and all day long. There's not one day when I will not be with you and not one part of one day when I will not be with you. Now, we are sometimes more and sometimes less aware of his presence, but even when we're not aware of it, he is always with us. And again, not only by virtue of his deity, but by virtue of his outpoured spirit. And that's the emphasis in, in John 14 to 16 as he's preparing the, the apostles for what's about to happen. They only have a dim idea. They haven't really grasped it, but they know enough to be uncomfortable and anxious. And again and again, he reassures them by the promise that he's going to send his spirit physically in his humanity. He's about to depart, but the spirit is going to come and minister to us in the place of Christ. That's why we've got two intercessors. We've got Christ interceding at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And Romans 8 says the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for us. We've got him interceding in our own hearts. How well, how intimately do you know Jesus Christ this morning? Again, I said, I hope and, and, and pray that uh, you know, you're trusting in him as your Lord and Savior, growing in your relationship with him. He is a person whom we can know and enjoy, not just in heaven, but here and now. And he is not just willing, but eager to reveal himself to you. To what extent are you cultivating that fellowship daily? What a blessing, brothers and sisters, that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, it's his presence, along with the Father and, and the Spirit, that's going to make heaven so wonderful. And his absence that's going to make hell so terrible. Through fellowship with Jesus Christ, even our desolate places can be a little bit of heaven on earth. So, to review and summarize, Jesus 
sometimes leads his disciples into desolate or deserted places, but always and only for the purpose of blessing them in the end. And no place is truly desolate when he is there. I often begin my sermons with a question. I'm going to end that way this morning. Let me ask you, will there be any desolate places in heaven? And by heaven, I mean the new heavens and the new earth. Will there be any desolate places there? If you immediately answered, of course not, let me say, hold on just a minute. As with so many things, it all depends upon what you mean by what you say, in this case, desolate place. Now, I've suggested that the word here, particularly the Greek word, particularly uh, applies to uh, lonely or isolated, uninhabited places, but I've broadened its application to uh, other kinds of desolation as well. And in the sense that Mark uses it here of isolated, uninhabited places, I think there may be. Of course, there's a lot we still don't know and understand about the, the new heavens and the new earth, what the world is going to be like when the Lord has renewed it and restored it. But one thing we're told is that there's going to be no more sea. And that means that there is going to be, a, the land mass is going to be much greater. Right now, more than two-thirds of the earth is covered by water. 71% of the earth is covered by water. And when that ocean's gone, a lot more, there's going to be a lot more land on the surface of the earth. Uh, given passages like Isaiah 35, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty grand, ground springs of water. I don't think there are going to be any deserts. And even though the redeemed are going to include a vast number of people, we mentioned last Lord's Day, I think, that, that there are uh, great reform scholars who believe that all the children who die in infancy are going to be saved. There are going to be millions, hundreds, perhaps billions of people on the earth. But it still seems to me that there could be desolate places in the sense of what we call national parks national forests, places where uh, they're, they're uninhabited and where we can go to enjoy the Lord and his glory in his creation. Again, we don't know for sure. But in terms of the other kinds of desolation we've talked about, there will not be. No more illness, pain and poverty, no more emotional, spiritual, relational desolation. And why not? Because the Lord will have completed his renewal, not just of us in soul and in body, but of the whole world. And Jesus will be there. And the Father and the Spirit in all of their grace and power and glory and beauty. Here's how John describes it in, John chapter, in Revelation chapter 7. Therefore they are before the throne of God... And serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. Neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. 
For the lamb in the midst of the throne shall be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Hallelujah. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please stand for prayer.